The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hello, good friends. It's Friday, November 4, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital. Welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable and an in-depth look back at the big stories of the week. In this last week before the midterms, with early voting setting record totals, most attention, of course, has been focused on the most important races for governor and U.S. senator, most of which, by the way, appear that they could still go either way. Key governor's races in Wisconsin, New York, Florida, Texas, and Pennsylvania. Key Senate races in Ohio, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, and New Hampshire. Many at this point still too close to call. Former Presidents Donald Trump and Barack Obama both hit the campaign trail this week. And in a primetime speech, President Biden said, It's not just Social Security and the economy at stake in this election. It's the future of democracy itself. Meanwhile, Paul Pelosi, husband of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, of course, was released from the hospital one week after the brutal assault on him in his San Francisco home, which many right-wing extremists continue to make fun of or deny even happened. Lots to talk about here today to help us sort it all out. Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America. Hello, Matt. Good morning. Chris Catalago, National Political Reporter for Politico. Hello, Chris. Hey, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. And Abby Livingston, Political Reporter for the Almanac of American Politics. Abby, good to have you back as well. It's my pleasure. So, uh, as I mentioned, we heard last night that uh, Paul Pelosi was released from uh, the hospital As he was being released, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was addressing a campaign rally in Sioux City, Iowa. She blamed Paul Pelosi for his own attack, saying, quote, Paul Pelosi was brutally attacked by a drugged out illegal alien that should have been deported, and Paul Pelosi should have been a gun owner and shot his attacker, at which point the crowd booed Paul Pelosi. Uh, Matt, this is just the latest in a flood of wild things said about Paul Pelosi's attack by people on the extreme right wing, right? You've been following it all. I have. I mean, it took about 48 hours for uh, the sort of right wing ecosystem to turn this story about a man who was obsessed with uh, right-wing conspiracy theories about how depraved the Democrats are and went on to commit political violence uh, into another right-wing conspiracy theory about how depraved the Democrats are. Uh, really kind of disturbing stuff. I mean, this guy broke into the home of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, carrying zip ties, duct tape, uh, looking for uh, the Speaker. Uh, didn't find him, found her husband. And 
uh, ended up uh, sending him to the hospital after beating him in the head with a hammer. Um, Internet footprint, which we all looked at, uh, it's is basically uh, you know your sort of stereotypical case of uh, internet radicalization. Lots of references to QAnon, to PizzaGate, uh, all the uh, greatest hits. Um, but what the right did was they turned they uh, put together a conspiracy theory in which he didn't actually break into the house, uh, but was there because uh, he and Paul Pelosi were gay lovers, uh, and that the violence was a lover's spat. I mean, this is just totally bonkers stuff that has like no uh, connection to reality. But it went around until you know the richest man on earth, uh, Elon Musk, was sharing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. hyperpartisan fake news stories about this on Sunday morning, and it just catapulted from there. Uh, you have Fox News hosts at least alluding to it and and telling their viewers uh, that they have reason to be suspicious about the whole thing. Um, and now, I mean, this is sort of the the basic Republican Party line is either there's nothing to see here, or it's somehow the fault of the Democrats that Paul Pelosi uh, was beaten in the head with a hammer. Yeah. You know, Chris, there have always been these uh, wacko theories about everything, right? I mean, uh, I remember talk radio hosts getting all the calls from people after 9-11 saying it was an inside job, right, By led by Don uh, uh, Dick Cheney at the time, right? But they were always way out on the fringe. In this case, again, Donald Trump himself said – that the glass in the, the the back door of the Pelosi's home was broken from the inside, not the outside. Therefore, it was a break out, not a break in. I mean, when you've got the former president of the United States spreading this stuff, that's pretty serious, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really serious. And I, I think that the other thing about this, as you guys kind of hit on, is there's uh, there's always been these theories floating around after major incidents. Yeah. The, the big difference here is who's spreading them and who has the, the microphone, particularly within the sort of power center of the GOP, but, you know, on the right online. I mean, I saw this this poll that just popped up um, that kind of gets it at, at some mm. of this uh, that was shared by uh, one of uh, Joe Biden's pollsters, John, John Anzalone, where he said 44 this this poll found that 44 percent of registered voters think the federal government is controlled by a secret uh, cabal. And so, I mean, these are just very, very kind of pervasive, uh, feelings about not, not sort of believing, uh, reality. And, um, this is the kind of thing, uh, you get when, when some of these, these incidents occur. And, uh, there's, it's a very, I mean, misinformation as a whole, we've, we've written a lot about this over the last couple of years. We've written about, you know, the administration and the government's efforts to try to sort of counter some of it. You saw it around vaccines. You've seen it around clearly voting um, and, and everything at the ballot box. Um, but it's, it's very, very uh, difficult, especially when major media outlets, uh, major uh uh, folks on the right are are giving this airtime and and platforming these things and i think um you know when you uh, one thing you see so commonly and we see when we go out into the field and we go to these rallies and we ask uh people questions about the candidates on stage and stuff is the you know you hear all of these things uh come out of people's mouths and in and especially in a lot of these battlegrounds and so um mm. you know it's it's the the 
the the fact that these uh, leaders on the right are echoing these these points, um, you know, are at this point not surprising. But it it's clearly very per- pervasive, and it's something you hear. We we not to go on, off on a tangent here, Bill, but like you know, this week uh, there's been a lot of headlines about this the these this sort of uh, fake news about the litter boxes in classrooms. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah, sort I- of another. Example and, and the, I guess you know main point we shouldn't be surprised that in this attack on Paul Pelosi that this has taken on um, all these uh, uh, rumors and conspiracies and innuendo within just the first few hours of it. Frankly, right. Uh, I just have to point out just as an aside, I saw that this morning the Paul poll about this belief in this global cabal, and of course cabal is a uh, you know what people mean by that they mean. Jewish leaders, Jewish financers around the world. It's a very anti-Semitic trope that we hear all the time. Uh, but uh, um, Abby, so there are some of these, I mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you pointed out, you've been working with the American Almanac, looking at the profiles of people who are likely to get elected and to join uh, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. Um, there are more like it heading our way, right? Absolutely. Um, The Almanac of American Politics is a book that um, most political junkies own, and it comes out every term. So it'll come out in about a year. And so we're getting a head start on uh, freshmen, soon to be freshmen, who we know are coming to Congress, who are in very safe or Republican or Democratic districts. And as I'm going through this, um, you know, there's there's a number of Republicans we know are coming, and they've either ousted uh, sitting Republicans who maybe voted for impeachment. Um, but they they are going to be in the mold much more of Marjorie Taylor Greene than Liz Cheney. Mm. And so it is, um, I mean, I, I think it's across the board. I, I don't want to, and I've not done all of them. I've just done maybe a dozen at this point. But um, Republican candidates, um, almost without fail, have said, um, you know, that Joe Biden did not win this election in 2020. This is still being litigated. Um, you know, and there's a lot of eyebrow raising behavior. And so and sort of coming back to the Paul Pelosi thing, what just sort of amazes me, and I think we've become numb to this, but it was only about 12 years ago that Congresswoman Gabby Giffords was shot in the head and several people were killed in that incident. And there was this um, for months soul searching in Washington and the Congress. And, you know, a week later was the state of the union and Republicans and Democrats, you know, normally sit divided through the chamber and a number of them joined together to sit with each other. And it became almost a a novelty Mm -hmm. prom date to see who they're with. And it was this really just painful episode in Washington. And I don't even, I mean, I'm not watching this as closely as I used to, but there were not really any statements that I saw. I'm sure a few exist of thoughts and prayers, just, you know, putting them out, just trying to uh, have a bit of grace about the situation. Instead, we there was just widespread blame of the victim and flat out lying about him. And, you know, I, I just think it's astonishing. And it is extremely terrifying that this is the response, that this has been almost condoned. And, um, you know, I, I, I think this country is in for something very, very frightening. Uh, I think we're in it already, indeed. Um, so this this week on the midterm, uh, trying to lay what he thought was a stake in the midterms, uh, President Biden um, scheduled a kind of a last minute primetime address, returning to a theme that he had um, 
spoken about in Philadelphia about a month or so ago, and that is it's democracy on the line. Here from Union Station in Washington the other night, uh, President Biden. It's about what makes America, America. It's about the durability of our democracy. For democracies are more than a form of government. They're a way of being, a way of seeing the world, a way that defines who we are what we believe, why we do what we do. Democracy is simply that fundamental. We must in this moment dig deep within ourselves and recognize that we can't take democracy for granted any longer. So Matt, not to be too much of a cynic, but uh, that's the message. Do people care? Do they believe democracy's on the line? I hope so. I mean, I, I think when you look at what's been going on in this right-wing media ecosystem over the last few weeks, it's very concerning stuff. You have folks like Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson telling their uh, audiences that basically any democratic victories should be uh, viewed as uh, examples of uh, election fraud and should be fought hard on the ground to be overturned. Uh, and uh, people like Steve Bannon have spent the last two years since January 6th uh, trying to stand up an infrastructure that will uh, try to flip elections in this way. Uh, now, it, it might not matter. At the end of the day, the political fundamentals are not good for uh, a president's party in a midterm election. But the plan B is in place uh, to try to discredit elections if Democrats do uh, happen to pull some of them out. Right. So what do you find, Chris, as you move around the country, um, uh, what are the issues driving these midterms? Is democracy uh, on the list, top of the list <laughs> at all? Um I wouldn't what say, the, if not, what are the other issues? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's you know the economy and and folks you know paying a lot more for goods right now. There's the uh, the Dobbs decision and 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 abortion rights. There's and 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 all, all the threats that that uh, that come along with that in terms of uh, possible other rights that might be at stake. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of things that go into the democracy question. I do hear it come up. I hear it come up particularly. Um, obviously, among Democrats. And I think that, uh, you know, for Joe Biden, what I would say on that is it, it's something he's wanted to put a marker down on consistently. You remember he gave the speech on the anniversary of uh, of January 6th and, of course, the mm -hmm. one in uh, Philadelphia in front of the, the red lights, um, uh, I think, at the beginning of September. But he did a few things that I think kind of went under the radar um, in this speech. It wasn't just about the the kind of thirty thousand foot warnings um, about these these threats to um, democracy and kind of how fragile that is. Um, he talked about something we did earlier here, uh, which was all of the folks in the um, you know on the ballot who um, you know want to and have said uh, uh, they could uh, you know undermine the vote or don't believe in the in the twenty twenty vote. And he also said something that you know. Uh, some folks in some states where ballot counting can take several days, sometimes weeks, um, have known for a long time. But, you know, talk about conspiracy theories, um, what we saw in 2020 and what we might see in 2022. He said that this can take, you know, several days, several weeks. He's sort of setting um, expectations for people hmm. that this is just the reality of what it what it takes to count votes. And um, I think, you know, from the sort of leader of the party, leader of the country, 
um, they felt like even though it was just a few lines in that speech, that was really an important point to make um, because in sort of the cable news chatter and talk of kind of who's up, who's down, the election mechanics um, often uh, you know, can be a little bit dry, a little bit boring right, to cover right. um, in terms of news. And I think that those were some messages in there that he wanted to to um, to convey. And, um, you know, whether it's a, 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 a top issue, there have been some polls where, where uh, that have shown it uh, register. There have been others that uh, where it's it's way down. Obviously, it kind of depends on how you ask the question. Um, but it, it is certainly in the mix for folks. Um, and you see that in some of the paid ads too, um, mm-hmm. particularly on the digital side, um, with folks warning about, uh, where, where we are headed or could be headed. And, and Abby, in terms of, um, issues driving the election, uh, it was thought at one time that, uh, and Chris just referenced the Dobbs decision, the Supreme court decision, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade would really motivate uh, particularly Democrats, particularly women, particularly suburban Republican women, too, uh, that this would be the number one issue in these midterms. Of course, we don't know yet, right, whether that's the case. But what it seems that the uh, intense interest around that decision has waned a little bit. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? The polls are not great for Democrats. Um, And they haven't been for a while, but there was sort of an uptick for upswing for Democrats in August and September. Um, I sort of, I, I, I'm one of those people who's grown up in Washington learning all of the signals to watch for, how to read polls and all of those things. And I found myself embarrassed in the 2016 cycle and in the 2020, um, just in in the, the laws of nature of politics defied me. And so, for instance, in 2020, um, you know, I thought there would be several House pickups in the state of Texas for Democrats and nationally more pickups, and they actually lost seats. So I think it's important to remember that we, we can't always predict these things. The Dobbs situation has made me that much more insecure or uncertain about my own analysis of this, because I I just think, you know, there's a youth vote that could come out. But that said, in the last two weeks or so, it just seems to get darker and darker for Democrats. But there is some, you know, chance we could wake up the day after the election and be surprised and that there was this vote that we just couldn't figure out how to poll. So that's how I see it. But it does seem to have mitigated in recent weeks. I think all of us are in a sort of a state of not trusting our own judgment anymore after 2016. Absolutely. Uh, and 2020. So don't feel you're alone in that case. You know, there are a couple of other issues that have popped up here, which I've I'm frankly surprised that would love to get your take on them. One is, is, you know, Social Security has always been the third rail, right? We don't touch it. I mean, so many people have learned that lesson. And yet this week, People are talking, actually talking about cutting Social Security. Um, so here, here are a couple of bites back to back. First of all, Rick Scott and Kevin McCarthy saying, no, 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 we're not going to go there, right? Followed by Mike Lee, uh, from, senator from Utah, of course, running for re-election, uh, saying, no, we're going to trash it. We're not just going to cut it back. We're going to we're going to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. These two back to back. I believe we got to preserve them and, and make sure we 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 keep them. Fine. Here's a commitment to America. What does it say in there? To save and strengthen Social Security and Medicare. This simply means is we're not touching it. Be my objective to phase out Social Security. To vote 
So phase it out, says Mike Lee. No, we're not going to touch it, says Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Matt, I'm surprised we're even talking about this. Yeah, Republicans have done a pretty good job of not uh, talking about what they will do if they gain power. But I think one (laughs) really unnerving thread uh, that's been coming out over the last several weeks is that there is a real plan among House Republicans if they uh, gain the majority to try to force a standoff over uh, the debt ceiling uh, in an effort to trim back Social Security and Medicare. Um, Of course, this uh, could lead to a total economic catastrophe if we actually, a global one, if we do blow through that debt ceiling. Uh, But they are apparently willing to risk that uh, in order to, uh, you know, cut back the spending that uh, millions of Americans depend on. So, Chris, uh, Barack Barack Obama out on the trail as well. Uh, He noticed Republicans are talking about Social Security. He gets to Wisconsin, and here is his counter. Some of you here are on Social Security. Some of your parents are on Social Security. Some of your grandparents are on Social Security. You know why they have Social Security? Because they worked for it. They worked hard jobs for it. They have chapped hands for it. They had long hours and sore backs and bad knees to get that Social Security. And if Ron Johnson does not understand that, if he understands giving tax breaks for private planes more than he understands making sure that seniors who've worked all their lives are able to retire with dignity and respect, He's not the person who's thinking about you and knows you and sees you, and he should not be your senator from Wisconsin. All right. All right, Chris, Barack Obama on fire, but it does point out there's a certain jeopardy for Republicans to be talking about clipping Social Security. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, you've noted the the comments that have gotten the most attention uh, you know, Mike Lee's, Ron Johnson's. I think the question here is, uh, and not to sound kind of too obvious, is one: does this really rise above uh, some of the the other issues that are that are driving a lot of the the paid media, a lot of the ads on the Republican right. side, particularly in some of these House races over things like crime, which I know we haven't talked about. That, that there's just been a huge amount of money that's gone into that issue. The other is, you know, do do people in some of these suburban districts and some of these other areas associate that issue, which has been, uh, as Matt said, um, uh, not not front and center for a lot of these Republicans? Um, and do they sort of extrapolate the comments that that a few senators have made and, and obviously a few few members of the House onto the party writ large? And that's the challenge for Democrats here is making this case, which Barack Obama is trying to do. Um, that this really uh, would be in jeopardy in this party. Basically, um, do do the the voters that Democrats need um, buy this argument that it's really under threat? The other thing on this is, you know, uh, there's been this whole kind of barrage of late stories that have come out about the White House, uh, Joe Biden, and of course Barack Obama and others at the top of the party prioritizing one issue over another. I mean, this has been something. Uh, uh, to point out um, on on the Biden side that he this has been a consistent sort of warning um, that they've been issuing for many months now. I mean, you go back to his mm-hmm. speeches. Obviously, it 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 never really took uh, 
took hold. It was never front and center. But that's kind of the same with a lot of what they say. I mean, there's a, there's a grab bag element um, to what they're trying to do. I mean, one day he'll come out and talk about the economy and they'll be around a story saying this is his closing message. And then he'll come out and, and talk about mm-hmm. protecting abortion rights. And people will say, well, it's this. So they have hit on a lot of these things. It's just the question is what what is really going to break through with folks? Um, and also how many people are, are, are listening at this point? Who are they really going to uh, going to sway it. Uh, there's a lot to these late rallies, which I know um, we're going to get right. to, uh, where they right. are are really focused on turning out um, the base at this point. And so that that's kind of where some of these folks have found themselves aside from Barack Obama, who is going into a lot of these battlegrounds. Right. We'll get to some of that uh, right after we take a break. But before we do, there's one other issue that I'm really surprised. First of all, a lot of people have pointed out that maybe the key issue that nobody talks about is, and what's driving American politics, is the fear of so many older white people that they're losing power, that their dominance in this country is being taken away by immigrants or by black, black African Americans. Uh, and that's always been an undercurrent. Uh, there's now an ad running in Georgia, which makes it, uh, a, it openly talks about the white fear of losing political power. Uh, this is an ad that was uh, put out there by a PAC controlled by Stephen Miller, who was responsible for the Muslim ban and for a lot of the actions against immigrants at the border. Uh, here's this ad about white, basically white supremacy. When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. There it is, Abby. Uh, anti-white politics. Uh, you got to vote for a Republican to, to protect, protect white people. For most of my lifetime, it has always felt like America was moving in a positive direction on race, maybe very slowly and not fast enough. But this is this feels like a step backwards. This is an ad that I, you know, the 2010 cycle for you know several cycles. Very few people watch more political advertising than I did. I, I watched almost every ad I could find in the country, and this is the kind of ad that in 2010 I feel like would have been, you know, decried. I, I, you know, and this is also just a symptom of Citizens United, which I think we're seeing more and more is infiltrating almost every aspect of politics. But this just wouldn't have even been in the arena. And it is now up on the air in a way, in a very consequential race in a state with, you know, a very heated racial politics going back many hundreds of years. And it's just astonishing to me. And this is just one more example of the fact that, you know, for most of my lifetime, it feels like we've been moving forward. And now it's just, we are moving backward. Uh, indeed. Uh, yeah, just really tr- troubling to hear that. Uh, great discussion so far. But now let's get down from the 30,000-foot level to look at some of these particular Senate races and governor's races. We'll do so quickly and find out uh, what our panel thinks might be happening with control of the House and with the Senate after a quick break here on uh, today's roundtable. 
And today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers under the leadership, yes, of Brandy, President Randy Weingarten, America's teachers doing a great job every day in the classroom from uh, everything from preschool through K through 12, higher education, and representing also many of the nation's nurses, the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT. Check out their website at aft.org for all the great work they're doing we thank them for uh, taking care of our kids in the classroom every day. We thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we're back with today's roundtable. Abby Livingston from uh, the Almanac of American Politics, Chris Catalago from Politico, and Matt Gertz, Media Matters for America. Uh, so, Chris, let me ask you, you, again, been out on the road maybe more than uh, any of us. Uh, let's start with... Um, key Senate races. Um, do you think uh, Democrat? What do you? What? How do you read the Senate? Democrats going to hold on, uh, or Republicans, as Rick Scott says, going to um, take over the control of the Senate? I mean, there's there's a lot there, obviously, Bill, and I I think that if you look at what the leadership is still saying, of course, there was uh, comments that came out from Chuck Schumer yesterday, right, uh, saying they they still felt good about their chances, uh, you know, shouldn't even have to say this, but the Pennsylvania race is just going to be so key. And that's where we're going to see uh, Barack Obama doing, uh, uh, you know, rallies in uh, in Pittsburgh and uh, Philadelphia, including with Joe Biden. You've got Bernie going going in, you know, to the big cities there. Um, that is is just such a key race. I think in some of these these other states, um you have a question of of uh, of top of the the ballot issues, whether it's in these uh, governors' races, which impact the House. Um, you've seen certainly uh, a big example of that in Arizona with uh, mm-hmm. Mark Kelly 
and the effect that uh, Carrie Lake's campaign has had um, on that Senate race. She's obviously sort of caught some fire there. Um, and so that'll be a real question of whether uh, Kelly can kind of withstand um, that. Uh, of course, Blake Masters is running against him. So that's a, a real key one to watch. We've seen some of these, you know, these reverberations around all these national stories um, out of Georgia with Herschel Walker. Um, that race certainly um, Warnock not helped, at least by the fact that uh, the governor there, the incumbent governor, uh, Kemp, has been up pretty consistently. Um, so, you know, counting on this sort of ticket splitting is a uh, is a difficult thing, um, you know, a tough thing for Democrats uh, when they have these uh, this drag from some of these governor's races. Um, the other thing just like broadly about a lot of these races is, is just expectations. I mean, I think when you talk to people months ago, a lot of these, um, especially the Pennsylvania one, everybody expected, especially when Ad, Ad, Dr. Oz, uh, Mehmet Oz made this pivot, you know, not away from Trump. Obviously, he's rallying with Trump, but uh, tried to kind of make this pivot, which you saw in the in the debate with John Fetterman, um, that these would all tighten. I think that was always the expectation. Um, the question is just like, where are these things ending up? And, you know, Democrats won some of these special elections uh, over mm -hmm. the, the summer and fall. And so, you know, it, it got people's hopes up maybe beyond where they should have been. Um, and so obviously there's still a still a real chance that that Democrats could come out with a, a tie. Maybe there's a runoff in in Georgia. Um, but, you know, it's been uphill from the beginning. And you look at the closing polls in a lot of these places and, um, you know, they certainly do favor uh, uh, Republicans, um, uh, you know, if you if you were to, to take them all. Obviously, there's been a real rush of Republican polls at the end um, uh, to, to, to take the Senate basically by a couple. Um, but, you know, it's it's very much a jump ball there. Well, uh, Abby, uh, to, to Chris's point, I looked uh, uh, getting ready for today's roundtable at, at seven or eight, eight actually of the key Senate races. And every one of them, almost every one of them is down to two points, right? Either one way or the other. I mean, I've never seen the polls like this so close to the election. They could break either way, couldn't they? Yeah. And one of the things I learned early on in politics when I worked for Chuck Todd was these things tend to break together. So they all fall one way or the other is the general uh, uh, mm. Mm. the pattern. Mm -hmm. But what exceptions to that came in 2010 and 2012 on the Senate map when you had um, in 2010 a huge Republican wave and in 2012 you had a presidential campaign um, and you had some Democrats survive who shouldn't have. And um, it was because of how weak the Republican candidates were. And you had ticket splitting in 2012. But that was a long time ago. And the politics is so much more toxic, so much more intense. People are so much more polarized. And so I just think this is going to be a very strange cycle. Um, and it just, again, it makes me so cautious and uncertain. But I, I do think there are such interesting races. I think the Ohio race is the most interesting race in the country. Ohio should not even be on the map. And Tim mm -hmm. Ryan is still in it. I think most people who know politics really well will never say, you know, if you put them on truth serum, Tim Ryan will run this race, but you just keep looking at it and he's still in it when, you know, there's states where Democrats, 
you know, Florida, Democrats are really not even in it anymore. And so it is just such an incredibly bizarre race. We see outliers, we see weird things. But then again, we may wake up on election day and be like, yep, it was a wave and this is what happened. Or Democrats held firm. So I, 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 it is just really hard to get a handle on this one. Uh, I can't help Matt, uh, but uh, we started out with your take on some of these wacko theories that we're hearing. Uh, Abby mentioned Ohio. Uh, It is the latest poll that I've seen again. Uh, Tim Ryan was up by two points. The next day, J.D. Vance was up by two points. Who the hell knows? Uh, But here is J.D. Vance's latest attack on Tim Ryan. If you look at his views on, for example, flooding America with illegal aliens and then using American tax dollars to fund gender reassignment surgeries for those aliens, that's exactly what Tim Ryan has proposed doing. <laughs> Matt, I guess you could say anything in a race these days. Uh, how do you see the Senate? What particular races have you been watching? Uh, I mean, I, I think the same set of eight races that everyone else is watching. I mean, I think you know, if if we're gonna if we're gonna do predictions, I think Democrats flip uh, Pennsylvania. I think the Fetterman campaign has done a really great job of defining Mehmet Oz, who on paper is actually a pretty good candidate. I mean, you know, you can look at uh, someone who is. Uh, you know, the children of immigrants, uh, degrees from Harvard and Penn, uh, a longtime Columbia University professor uh, with, uh, you know, an in to American uh, homes, including in Pennsylvania, and say that that's a formidable candidate. But his negatives are really off the charts. So I think they take that one. I think they hold New Hampshire and Arizona. Uh I think Republicans flip Nevada, hold North Carolina and Ohio, and Georgia goes to a runoff with Senate control on the line uh, amid uh, Donald Trump uh, declaring his presidential race uh, after uh, the midterms. I also think, and we should, uh, I I think, foreground this since it came up earlier, uh, it's going to take a while for some of these elections to play out. I think Pennsylvania and Arizona in particular will be close enough uh, that the counts will take a while, and I think the uh, Republican and right-wing media a conspiracy theory ecosystem that you talked about earlier is going to swing into action. Uh, I saw uh, Rick Grinnell, uh, the Republican operative hmm. and Trump appointee, tweet yesterday, any state which doesn't count all the votes and announce the winner Tuesday night is incompetent. Zero states are going to count all the votes and announce the winner Tuesday night. That is not a thing that happens. Uh, But they are trying to lay the groundwork here uh, in the same way they did in 2020 to expect the thing that is going to happen, which is uh, election day votes favoring Republicans and mail-in votes that are counted later favoring Democrats. Uh, They're going to try to use that to suggest elections are being stolen. It's going to take a while for all Mm. the votes to be counted as Biden is trying to point out, uh, and there's going to be a real effort uh, to try to uh, confuse people about about that. Uh, yeah, I had to laugh out loud because it just reminded me right away of Donald Trump saying on election night 2020, they should stop counting the votes right now, right? <laughs> Don't count any more votes. <laughs> just not the way it happens. Uh, Chris, could we see a couple of surprises in Utah and Iowa, states that most people are not talking about? Uh, the, I mean, the, the Utah one is a, just a really interesting dynamic. Uh, you've had Evan McMullen kind of, uh, 
surprise some folks with how uh, you know he's obviously challenging Mike Lee and and the he's he's running all these ads that that uh, basically sort of put the pox on both houses you know and he's been uh, he he's he's kind of caught up to the point where it's gotten the attention of not only um, national uh, Republicans but also uh, you know folks in the in the state. And it has Evan McMullen has then come out in turn and said he won't uh, caucus with Democrats, basically, mm-hmm. because that would be, uh, you know, you, you can't run in Utah as as sort of the, the Democrat. And so there's a lot of sort of uh, personal and personality uh, aspects to that race. But but there's also policy ones. And I think he's he's tried to kind of point out that that Mike Mike Lee is sort of at the extreme of the Republican Party. But I mean, it, it's. The, the, the Republicans or, or or the incumbent and his his folks have really kind of caught up on the air there. So, um, you know, that would that would certainly be a surprise. I think Iowa, um, you know, this is another scenario, not to the point um, or to the degree of a Tim Ryan where Democrats uh, had picked a, you know, really sort of a strong candidate to go up against. Uh, Grassley there, yeah. and um, you know someone who sort of fits the mold of the voter there. Um, the just the overall numbers. I mean, you look at some of these races. Certainly, again, not to repeat myself, but the Tim Ryan one, where in another year, in another cycle, that may have been more favorable overall to Democrats, even not knowing what's going to happen on Tuesday and beyond, uh, where some of these could have been tighter, where Democrats. Uh, maybe could have pulled it out, but it, it, in addition to sort of the the questions in Iowa about Chuck Grassley's age, or um, you know whether he should hang around longer, or or even the questions about uh, uh, Mike Lee and whether he's out of step out of step with the electorate. Certainly, he's he's uh, takes a, a different approach than the governor there, um, or than Mitt Romney. Um, you might see a scenario where there could be a, a real surprise in those particular states, um, but mm-hmm. it, it's it's hard to see. I there there are others where um, you know there there could be uh, there could be some surprises, and all of that really has to do with. I mean, if if Democrats overperform in this, it's gonna the storyline is really gonna focus on some of these candidates that Republicans uh, nominated. Um, there, there, there's there's a whole right. slate of them, whether it's in the Senate. Yeah. Or in these house races, and that the, the the question will just be: Did they fit, pick folks that were way out of step with the districts? That even in even in a cycle where it should have been very favorable to Republicans, uh, they still couldn't pull it out, and that that'll be that'll be a huge reason why uh, that that would have happened. Uh, and Abby, I guess the other factor, right, is turnout. Uh, to what extent that either party has a good ground game, right, in state after state. Uh, and the fact that 30 million Americans have already voted indicates um, turnout could be very, very high. Absolutely. And that's that is the the gleaning of the the positive that you see some Democratic strategists take from this. Um, I you know there's a strategist named Tom Bonnier who's looking at early vote numbers and is very very encouraged. Other folks will counter. He's comparing it to 2020, um, and that you can't really do that with the pandemic and that sort of thing. But that is what gives Democrats hope. And you know I can just kind of I, I have recently moved to New York City, and um, the governor's race there has gotten very spooky for Democrats. But in the la- it seems like the Democratic establishment has effectively rallied 
uh, Manhattan Democrats because I'm, you know, in the last few days, I've just seen a ton of I voted tickets and this or mm-hmm. stickers. And so I think there is a sense of need to run up the vote in a state that's usually not competitive. Um, and so absolutely. And I think that it adds to another level of ins- uncertainty with this. And it's just a reminder that midterms are usually uh, very low turnout, especially among young people. Yeah. So we shall yeah. see. But not this one. Uh, so, Matt, I want to give you the last word. You mentioned Pennsylvania. It is a colorful, colorful race. Uh, and uh, Mehmet Oz ma- uh, made a little history this week when uh, he talked about the fact that we need another Republican senator on the Atlantic coast. That's what's uh, so important in Pennsylvania. Here's Dr. Oz. Pennsylvania is too important. And listen, this is important. We do not have a Republican senator north of North Carolina on the Atlantic coast until you get to Maine if I don't hold this seat. Maine. Uh, so, so, Matt, uh, we do know that Pennsylvania is not on the Atlantic coast. This reminds me of the time he said he grew up just south of Philadelphia and the <laughs> Fetterman uh, campaign put out a video pointing out that, in fact, just south of Philadelphia is New Jersey, where Dr. Oz uh, lives, uh, rather than in Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. So it, it really comes down almost to the two personalities, doesn't it, in Pennsylvania? And of course, Oprah today endorsed John, or yesterday endorsed John Fetterman, uh, not the doctor that she had on the air all the time and helped him become famous. Yeah, one campaign is supported by Oprah and Barack Obama, and the other has Donald Trump coming in. Uh, for uh, support at the end. So there you go. And with that, uh, there it is, the midterms. Our next roundtable will be talking about what happened, not what might happen. Uh, great job today. Uh, Matt Gertz, thank you so much. Chris Catalago and Abby Livingston. But before you go, out of all these stories we've been talking about or other stories that you were working on this week, uh, there's always one of them that catches your attention, uh, makes you stop for a second to think about it maybe even weep or laugh about it. We call it our favorite story of the week. Um, Abby, what, uh, what, what, what prompted you? What was your favorite story? My favorite story was a story on Semaphore on Sunday night, which uh, mm. reported that my former boss, Evan Smith, uh, the outgoing CEO of the Texas Tribune, is headed to Emerson Collective to do what I admired most in Evan, which he had started the Texas Tribune, and it's a nonprofit that uh, uh, has basically saved local news in the state of Texas. And he has helped as sort of a side job, uh, mentor other people in other states like Nevada and elsewhere, create sort of similar Texas Tribunes. And in his new uh, in uh, iteration of his career, he will be doing that full time. Uh, and I am enormously proud of Evan for that, and I will be cheering him on. All right. There you go. Good plug for your former boss. Uh, Chris Catalago, how about you? So I think, you know, in this in this divided uh, nation that we're in, um, there's there's one thing that, uh, uh, you know, some folks are down on, but uh, but that still drives massive numbers in this country. And that's NFL football, obviously college football. <laughs> yes. And um, this story that, uh, you know, floated, I think, in the last day or so of Jeff Bezos, obviously the owner of the, the, the Washington Post and, and, and the founder of Amazon and all that might be in to buy the, the Washington football team. And of course, uh, you know, big news in Washington, but, uh, you know, big news, news elsewhere as well, just in terms of uh, uh, his mm-hmm. profile and all the controversy, you know, the, the, the dozens and dozens of controversies that have uh, swirled around the current uh, owner. 
Um, and it, you know, you, you start to see sort of that kind of consolidation out there. And uh, it's, uh, it's an intriguing story in terms of what uh, Bezos is trying to do, especially with Amazon getting Thursday night football um, and breaking into, uh, uh, you know, one of the sort of last areas of, uh, of frankly, live broadcast TV that has done really well. Um, so definitely something to watch there, not only for Washington football fans, but there's a, a real broader kind of, uh, uh, you know, interest in that story. So we'll see uh, if Bezos can take the team. Yeah, uh, but let's not let's not bury the lead here, the, which may be that Dan Snyder is going to is thinking of selling the team, which <laughs> which uh, most Washingtonians, I think, were very very glad to hear. Certainly, right? yeah, exactly. Uh, how about you, Matt? Your favorite story? My favorite, I, as regular listeners know, I always use this spot to talk about my favorite media conspiracy theory, which I don't actually believe, yes. but it's fun to think about. Which is that the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the Wall Street Journal <laughs> oh, and yeah. New York Times, uh, and are using their reporting on the rich to bring about the revolution. Uh, to wit, the Wall Street Journal this week is celebrating the tenth anniversary of its its mansion section. Uh, and uh, rolled out a splashy piece uh, yesterday. Uh, <laughs> the headline is 10 years ago, $50 million home sales turned heads. These days, $100 million homes do. A look at how luxury markets in Miami, Los Angeles, and New York have changed in the past decade, plus what $5 million could buy you in 2012 versus today. To be fair, I did not have $5 million for real estate in 2012, nor do I have $5 million for real estate now, but uh, to the uh, DSA infiltrators at the Wall Street Journal, congrats on 10 years of service. Uh, My hat is off to you. But you know, billionaires deserve some uh, some coverage too, I guess, and they're getting it in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Well, I got to say, my favorite story of the week was a really feel good story that I saw in the Washington Post, and this is all about uh, the great actress uh, Julia Roberts, uh, and it's been revealed. So Julia Roberts uh, grew up in Smyrna, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and her parents had a little theater school where um, there was an African-American couple, a pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King, uh, and their little kids could not did not have access to uh, a lot of uh, after-school activities, um, but they were able to get their kids enrolled in the theater school that Julia Roberts' parents uh, were holding. Uh, And the two couples, the Roberts couple and the King couple, became very, very good friends. And in 1967, 55 years ago, when little Julia Roberts was born, her parents could not afford to pay the hospital bill for her, their kid's birth. And Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King showed up and paid the hospital bill, paid to bring Julia Roberts, a great actress, into the world. Uh, and I thought that was just a great feel-good story. This was 1967, uh, when it was not easy, uh, certainly in Georgia, for um, black couples and white couples to be, be, even be seen together. So I thought it was just a, a great story and made me uh, feel very good. And once in a while, we need a good feel-good story like that. 
uh, and Julia Roberts has become a great civil rights activist, and maybe uh, that's why certainly uh, influenced her. So thank you so much again to today's panel, Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America, Chris Catalago from the National Political Reporter for Politico, and Abby Livingston from the Almanac of American Politics. Thanks to all of you for joining us for today's roundtable as well. We'll be back next week uh, on Tuesday. Not so much. We'll be voting on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, our next podcast, where um, I will take a look at what we know so far and give you my own analysis of the results of the and the impact of the Tuesday midterms, such as we know them, on Wednesday morning. Meanwhile, get out and vote. Get out and vote Have you already, if you haven't already done so. Take care of yourselves. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you again in the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.